This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I'm so glad that you got the memo and we're all in black tie, top hat, monocle, coattails and all. <laughs> White gloves, a cane, you know, I, I, I can't twirl the cane while sitting down in our recording studio, but hopefully at least the effect will be there. We oh. are fancy today. We are exceedingly fancy today, which makes sense because the movies that we are watching are about the higher echelons of society, or at least the attempts to break into those echelons. This week, we are going to be reviewing Nina Mansour's new release, Polite Society. And we're going to be pairing that with a great screwball comedy from 1936, My Man Godfrey. Put on your top hat and tails and join us for a pinky-lifted episode of Seeing and Believing. This is Salim Shah. He's 32, big shot, geneticist, setting up some fancy new lab. He's also the mastermind behind derailing Nina's future. A lecherous, loathsome cat. A poo face. Sisters, this is more than just act two wobbles. Nina has been brainwashed by this wife-hunting maniac who's chosen her to be his trophy bride. And she is too sad and mind-shat to see what is going on. So that leaves it to us to break off this sham wedding. Who's with me? Down with the patriarchy! Let's decimate this mother! So what's the plan? Welcome, listeners, to episode 380. As we hinted at just now, we are going to be fancy lads and ladies for this week's episode. We must. Society dictates that we must. Yes, we, you know, we do. I, I've taken my top hat and monocle. I've set them aside so they don't pop out in case you have some terrible opinions. Mm. I, I don't want anything to be damaged, but <laughs> my waistcoat and tails are freshly pressed and uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Let's dance. Yeah, so we are going to get to uh, My Man Godfrey, uh, my watch list pick in the second half, but we're going to talk about a little movie called Polite Society right here in the first segment. This is, of course, uh, a new release directed and written by Nita Mansour, who uh, had her breakout with the TV series We Are Lady Parts. Mm -hmm. That is a British show about an all-female Muslim punk band and this new film brings at least some of that sort of riotous energy of punk to its story about a young woman named Rhea whose dreams of being a movie stunt performer have a tendency to explode into her more quotidian life as a London high schooler. Her sister, Lena, harbors her own dreams of being an artist, but her art school ambitions are dashed and she becomes swept up in an engagement with a handsome doctor from the upper crust of their Pakistani community. Rhea is horrified by the thought of her sister becoming lost in the humdrum life of a trophy wife, so she decides to exert every ounce of daring do she can muster to stop the wedding and expose the rich in-laws for what she suspects them to be. So a little bit of the eat the rich uh, sentiment in this movie, of course. And it's also a movie that at times, or at least for me, Sarah, let me know if you th what you think about this. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it played a lot like a mashup of Edgar Wright and Jordan Peele. Mm -hmm. High energy genre homage on one hand and pointed social and culture commentary on the other. I'm curious to know how accurate you think that description is for you. And if you do think it fits, how well do, do you think Manzur does at handling that balance? Yeah, I think that's a good description. I don't think it fully gets the entire picture of what polite society is, though, because you're right, there is a little bit of 
cultural and social commentary. There's also um, a bit of the high energy and snappy editing of an Edgar Wright. But there's also a lot of the enthusiasm of a Hong Kong action movie in here as well. And then there are elements of a heist. There's elements of a high school drama movie. There's just a lot going on in this movie. And I think for the most part, it holds up pretty well underneath all of those different genre mashup pieces. I don't know that it fully succeeds because it is trying to do so much all at once, but a lesser film would feel bogged down underneath all of that weight. And this movie does feel pretty buoyant and energetic. It feels almost light in a way. And I don't mean that to belittle it at all. It's just that there is a very light touch here and there's a very enthusiastic touch towards all of the different touchstones that Nita Munzur is bringing into this movie. It's very clear that she loves all of these elements and she wants to bring them in. And to me, it feels like a first-time director going for broke with everything that she's got. And I really appreciate the swing for the fences. I don't know that it fully sticks the landing, but I did have a lot of fun while I was watching it. So I'm curious to know if it landed kind of along the same lines for you. Yeah, I think the your description of how it is kind of, it's a, a movie that tries to be light on its feet. You know, mm-hmm. it's not trying, it's not trying to be as... I guess, trenchant as something like a Jordan Peele picture might be. Hmm. Um, and it's it's got a different sort of, I don't know, they're, like Edgar Wright, is his films are very, like they're, they're just very overwhelming, I guess, in, in their style, mm-hmm. which I, I personally love. But this one is a little bit, they're, they're, it's got a more laid back energy to it maybe. Mm-hmm. For me, laid back isn't the right word. It's got a lot of pep in its step. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it, it is its own beast, I guess. And I think that's to to the film's credit. Yeah, I feel like Edgar Wright, um, his editing is honed to such a fine point that you kind of get overwhelmed by the brunt of the force of the movie that he's making. And usually it's just one specific topic that he's really honing in on. There's a kid who can drive a car really fast or, you know, there's a zombie apocalypse and nobody else around is fully noticing what's going on. Here, I think you get a little bit of that energy and that enthusiasm, but this movie is going off in so many other different directions that I don't think comparison to Edgar Wright's movies are entirely fair because Mansoor isn't really trying to do exactly the same thing here. She's trying to pull in a lot of different things in a more, I think, inclusive manner. And you did say laid back. I actually kind of agree with that because I didn't feel overwhelmed the same way that I sometimes feel with an Edgar Wright movie. I did feel like there were a lot of different elements flying in here, but the pacing was good enough that I didn't feel as though I was being clocked upside the head by multiple different influences all at once. It was just okay, for a little while, we're going to be a heist movie. And then for a little while, we're going to be a Bollywood drama. And then for a little while, we're going to be just a straight up Hong Kong action flick. And I do think that the movie wears its influences on its sleeves very lovingly and very well. Um, It did feel like there was a little bit of whiplash in between the different chapters of the film, though. Yeah, I don't know if it's... I don't know if whiplash is what I'd call it. There's definitely something here that, at least for me kept it from fully cohering Hmm. i guess there's i i don't i i don't know so much that it's it 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 may maybe it's trying to do too much i just don't think that um for a movie that really is kind of trying to be a genre homage to you know martial arts action movies um that is trying to cram in all these different genre elements I feel like for for a movie to be able to pull that off, I think it has to be both a love letter to those genres while also being an exemplar of them. Like hmm. um, if you're going to make kind of a loving homage to an action movie, you also have to make a, like the, the very process of making one of those entails that you also make basically a good action movie. It's mm-hmm. a tall order. Um, it's not easy to do. Um, but I don't think this movie really pulls it off. I, I found myself kind of wishing it were either a better action movie or a better comedy. Hmm. And I don't know that it really fully succeeded at either of those things for me. Although there are some fun bits, there's not really a through line that really 
made it feel coherent to me in a, or made it feel like a fully realized project, I guess. There's something a little bit flat about this that I, I couldn't put my finger on exactly. Hmm, yeah. Let's talk about those action sequences a little bit because I do think that they were interesting. And um, there's a couple of sequences where I definitely sat up and paid a little bit closer attention just due to some of the techniques that were being used. So there's a very early action sequence in which our hero, Rhea, played by Priya Kansara, um, faces off against one of her high school bullies. And the movie kind of flips on its head a little bit pulls in maybe what you would call like a bit of an Edgar Wright homage or a bit of an Edgar Wright touchstone because it feels almost like Scott Pilgrim in the moment when Rhea faces off against her bully. We see both of them in profile. They face off against each other. The entire school gathers around just to watch them fight. And it's kind of understood that in the world of this movie, people will just spar with each other even outside of the dojo or something. And there's some wire work that happens in this early sequence that I appreciated very much because you could tell that that was an actual actor floating in space doing something that kind of defies the laws of physics a little bit. And that's where I saw some of the, you know, Hong Kong action homages coming in. What I wish the movie had done would have been to commit just a little bit more to some of the wire work and some of the practical effects. I don't know if it's a budget consideration, but I kind of missed that one wire stunt after we got a couple of other action sequences throughout the movie. I think they're pretty well choreographed. I think the pacing is good. I don't know that the shot-to-shot editing is quite holding up some of those action sequences because I felt like I kept getting a little bit lost in the sauce. I could tell what was happening. I knew where everybody was on the screen, but the punches didn't feel like they were fully connecting for me. And so maybe it's something to do with just the building blocks of the film itself, the the progression from one shot to the other, where I didn't really feel like there was all that much weight to the characters as they were throwing each other around. Well, you know, it it's probably just, I was thinking about this just because, uh, you know, Rhea is, you know, herself like a uh, huge fan in the film of a particular stunt woman, Eunice Huthart. If I'm if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I'm not familiar with. with She's her Scottish, so we'll give a, we'll give the pronunciation a bit of a pass. But yeah, <laughs> but but it's it's definitely like in the context of the movie, um, uh, stunt performing is something that the main character loves so much. She, you know, trains in martial arts constantly. She has her own YouTube channel where she, you know, kind of choreographs her own action, short action sequences. And because of that, I found myself kind of thinking about the stunts in polite society and wondering why they felt a little bit flat. And I wonder if it's because... You know, in these classic Hong Kong flicks that the movie is uh, paying tribute to, the stars of those films weren't just actors. They were also extremely skilled athletes. And I feel like that physicality, that sense that these people are really doing amazing things on camera is is lost here. Most most of the uh, the cast are not professional stunt performers. They're not like, you know... They, there are very few Jackie Chans in the world, but yes. they, I don't think that they're really even playing the same sort of game. And I think that that's maybe why it feels flat to me and why the action doesn't feel like it fully works is that there's a lot of lip service paid to the art of stunt performing, but in the filmmaking and in the casting, there's just it doesn't seem like it can really walk its talk. <laughs> and, and I don't know, it, it sticks out a little bit in, in a film that does really purport to be in love with this kind of cinema, to not really be able to approximate the same level of of athleticism that you see in those films. I think you can be in love with something and not also be able to fully replicate that thing, though. Like, this movie is very enthusiastic about stunt work, and I think that that really shines through in both the script and in some of those sequences. It's just, you're right, there, there is a level of craft here that I think is missing from something like, say, a John Wick movie, which is also a love letter to action sequences and to stunt work, too. Here, I think more of the movie's energy is taken up in the dramatic stakes 
between Rhea and Lena as siblings. And so there is a scene partway through the movie where the two sisters just go at it with each other. And I think that scene, that particular fight scene worked for me almost more than anything else in the movie because it did feel very personal and it felt very funny, even though these two characters are really exercising a lot of rage towards each other at that moment in time. Um, I mean, I have siblings and I have fought with my siblings, although not physically like this. <laughs> you haven't kicked them through a door. No, <laughs> no, I have not. And I n- never will. But the emotion behind that action where one sister physically kicks her other, like kicks her sister through the door felt very real to me because there is a lot of that sibling rivalry and anger and disappointment that kind of comes out when you're scrapping with, with your siblings. So, um, I don't know. I think that that one did work, but I think it was because there were a lot more emotional stakes behind it. Whereas the fight with the school bully just felt like a more of a perfunctory, we're going to introduce the world of this movie where everybody's just scrapping all of the time. And that's a fun concept, but it doesn't carry quite the same stakes as that middle of the road fight does. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's... I, I still think there's something in the craft here that's not fully gelling for me. Uh, you know, again, like you can't don't have to fully replicate the same insane level of athleticism that you see in in some of these uh, some of these action films that this that this film is homaging. But I do I, I feel like. You know, Edgar Wright, his, you know, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost aren't exactly, you know, they're, they're not Jackie Chan on their own right. But I think because Wright is able to create such energy with his edits, hmm. even even if the the amount of uh, stunt and uh, action daring do isn't as present in those films as there are in some of the films he's referencing, I feel like you still kind of get the feeling of it. You're kind of carried along with it. And I think I'd feel a little bit more charitable towards that if I felt more confident that the film was had a more pointed commentary on whatever it is it's commenting on. <laughs> that I, I felt like whatever social commentary was going on in this film was a little, was fuzzy enough that it wasn't clicking for me either. It, it it felt like it on on the one hand it wasn't a good enough action film to be fully satisfying as an homage in that area, and the class based comedy felt like it was a little bit undercooked to me as well. Hmm. Okay, so here's where we're really going to differ on this movie, I think, because I appreciated the specificity of the setting and the characters and the placement in this movie. And I appreciated the movie as a commentary on being second generation, like immigrant kids of first generation immigrants who are trying to figure out their own place within society that doesn't fit the model that their parents have set up for them. And then also the disappointment that comes when one of those kids decides to adhere a little bit more closely to tradition than one of the other ones does. Like the main brunt of the conflict between Rhea and Lena is that Lena went out and she tried doing her own thing and she tried living her life the way that she specifically wanted to. And that doesn't work for her. So she comes home and she chooses to go through with an arranged marriage because she thinks that that's the best option for her. And Rhea, as you know, you're I think she's about 16 or so, like as a 16 year old girl is not having any of this because she doesn't think that this is an acceptable way for her sister to live. Like, I feel like the tension here is not necessarily between class in terms of upper crust and lower crust, like income levels. I think the tension here is the decision to either um, assimilate into a different culture or to carry on the traditions of your parents. And so the tension here is that Rhea really wants to hang on to the things that she really, truly loves within London without necessarily paying any homage or care for the traditions of her family or anybody else in her immediate social circle. Um, And I like that the movie doesn't try to explain too much of that 
at all. Like we get a lot of dialogue between the parents where they're talking about their children. And it to me, it felt quite pointed because it felt as though the brunt of the societal expectations are falling on Rhea and Lena's mother as someone who is incapable of raising somebody who is respectful towards their parents. Um, and I kind of like that they didn't really explain that all that much. So I don't know. It didn't feel fuzzy to me. It felt very specific, but it felt specific mm. in a way that didn't feel like it was trying to hedge or explain anything. See, I I, I don't know if it did feel specific to me. I don't. Hmm. I, I felt like there were some broad strokes there that were legible. Like you know that you know these are second generation immigrant children. Their parents are you know want want to want their kids to be. Um, comfortable financially they Mm. want to secure their future and that's fine as far as it goes i think that i've i feel like that by itself is something that i've seen in a lot of movies before Mm -hmm. and i don't think that the specifically the parents are drawn all drawn all that sharply or maybe they're not performed all that sharply Mm. for any little nuances any little grace notes to to fully come across so for me it felt like it never really got beyond kind of that broad stroke surface level you know kind of immigrant story where yeah i see what it's doing is it doing it in a way that i haven't seen before i don't really know that it is and i feel like if it those those scenes where um the the family is together if if those were given more room to breathe without the genre elements if it had been more like focused on slice of life kind of comedy drama maybe that would have worked but i feel like it's kind of being pulled in two directions where it kind of wants to do both and i don't think it really fully succeeds at either Hmm. there's a scene where um uh it's right after the uh it's the conclusion to the fight between Lena and Rhea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they, you know, they've been, you know, knocking each other into, into walls, punching, punching holes in closets, you know, trashing the room. And then it concludes with, um, you know, them snarling each other. And then Lena says, maybe I'm not good enough mm-hmm. to be an artist. And that's kind of where the, the fight kind of stops. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that felt like a very real moment where, Lena had a, it was a moment of great vulnerability for her. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel like, like that was a really interesting moment for me. I don't feel like the movie really followed up on that in any way, because after that, it was right back to the nefarious per- perspective in-laws being, you know, kind of very broad action movie villains, mm-hmm. which is fun as far as it goes. But I don't think... I don't think it gels very well with the the immigrant story that's being told in other parts of the movie. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I kind of agree with you on how sharply Lena is sketched out as a character, but I think that the movie still works for me because it's very much Rhea's point of view and Rhea's perspective. And I think that the drawing out the conflict between these sisters and each other and then these sisters and their parents I think worked for me just more on a visual level almost than anything else just the way that they're framed the way that um Lena when she is finally like dressing up to go out on a date with her prospective fiance the movie frames her in a slightly different aspect ratio so Um, she's actually like dressed up like a character from a rom-com and the movie actually takes on that perspective for just a hot second when we see her going out to the car for her fiance and then we cut back to Rhea and the camera resumes its original um, aspect ratio and just slowly zooms in on her like a like a slow 70s like action movie and it gets you right back into Rhea's headspace I don't think that any of the other characters in this movie would be seeing the world in quite that way. And I think what's going on here is that the movie is really taking on Rhea's perspective very, very closely, so much so that she's essentially the narrator of the story. And the way that the movie is shot and framed kind of reflects that subjectivity with the way that she sees the world. Um, And so... 
I get not quite being on board with the level of specificity with all of the other characters, but I think that it still works because it's so folded up tightly within Rhea's head that I don't know that the movie is willing to consider any of these other characters as being fully other human, and that's because that's how Rhea sees the rest of the world. So it doesn't bother me all that much. Uh, yeah, man, I, I just don't... I, I just don't know that I I'm I can follow you there with that level. It it is a subjective perspective that we're getting all this action th- from, right? Like it is mm-hmm. through Rhea's eyes. Is it, it being intentionally? Is it p- doing things stylistically and, and technically that really? can support that level of subjectivity uh, in the way we read what's happening on screen. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not buying this. Sorry. <laughs> like I, I, I see the, the argument there and normally I'm very much on board with um, reading a film specifically as, you know, what's on screen isn't necessarily the quote-unquote literal reality mm-hmm. of the events. But I I don't know if that fully works with the action elements where in in an action movie, it's not like when when John Wick, you know, is <laughs> is finding a whole bunch of henchmen. It is a very heightened reality, but it's not heightened because John is seeing it that way. It's just heightened because that is the world that the movie has created. Mm-hmm. And it and for me, it felt like the 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 world that polite society is is creating is kind of at odds with itself. Where on one hand, it does kind of want to take. Uh, it does want the audience to take this sisterly relationship kind of at face value mm-hmm. on its own terms, kind of in a more slice of life manner. But it wants us to take the core conflict, which is the evil in-laws, as kind of heightened action movie stuff. And I don't know that I can really do both at the same time and have the movie feel harmonious. Hmm. Yeah, I get that. Maybe that comes back down to the movie trying to pull in probably too many things and too many genres all at once. Because it was so enthusiastic about all of those, I think I was willing to be a little bit more swept up in it, it sounds like, than you were. But I get that. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't lots of surface pleasures to be had here. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked Nimra Bucha as the as the uh, the mother of the of the husbands to be. Yeah. Just if she had a mustache, she'd be twirling it like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I was on board for her performance. She's so good. I think that she almost like blows a lot <laughs> of the other cast out of the water because she just does feel so deliciously bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I really enjoyed every minute that she was on screen where she's just having the time of her life. Yeah, she's having a lot of fun. I think she's given a lot of the like meat of the story and the meat of the dialogue to work with. There were some really funny like tossed off one-liners that also felt kind of as though they were sort of coming out of nowhere and just being thrown out there as this is just a funny thing for a character to say. Um, there's a moment where one character is... There's a moment where Rhea is having a fight with her mom and um, the two of them pause to like comment on the color nail polish that Rhea is wearing. And I found the specificity of the nail polish color names funny enough that like I was willing to go with that level of distraction, I think. So there's I mean, there is a lot of enjoyable pieces within this movie. I think it coheres up to a certain point and then it starts to crack apart. But I'm willing to forgive it the places where it does fall apart because when it does fall apart, like it's still doing so with like verve and enthusiasm. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Polite Society. A little bit of a, I don't know if the split decision is exactly, but there's there's some fisty cuffs, I guess. Maybe that's fitting. It's appropriate for the movie for sure. Uh, but we're curious about your take on this film as well. Is you, If you've had a chance to see it, let us know your thoughts. 
You can tweet us at SeeBelievePod on Twitter. Send us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Letterboxd. We're over there. Our username on that platform is SeeBelievePod as well. We always love hearing your thoughts. We're going to move away from the uh, fights and the martial arts to talk just straight up comedy in our watchlist segment when we talk about my man Godfrey here in a bit. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, helping us keep the conversation about movies going. Sarah, as our uh, resident Twitter expert, you are the one posing the questions. And since we were talking about polite society this week, you had stunt performers on the brain. What, What did you ask our listeners over on Twitter? I wanted to know what listeners' favorite stunt sequences were in a movie. I felt like it was very appropriate given the subject matter. And we heard back from some of our listeners. So Ron Sturry responded back with a really good one. As someone with a fear of heights, Tom Cruise climbing down the Burj Khalifa skyscraper and jumping into a window several stories below the length of his rope in Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol nearly made me physically ill. <laughs> I love that sequence so much, but it is terrifying. <laughs> it's really good. I have a problem with heights as well, Ron. And yeah, I, I, I definitely clenched a lot of the muscles in my body when uh, when that was going on. So I get you on that. We also heard from Christopher Miller, who responded with no words, just a gif of a very specific fight scene from another Mission Impossible movie. This is the fight scene on the beach in which Tom Cruise nearly gets a knife stuck in his eye. It's a great shot. Yeah, yeah. Mission Impossible 2. Maybe the, the, the least of the Mission Impossibles, but that is a really good fight sequence and yeah i i I thought we'd get a few mission impossibles in the mix here it's kind of a a franchise that lends itself well to that discussion yeah it's definitely a mainstay when you're talking about stunt sequences we also heard back from jason moorhead who responded with i gotta go with something from jackie chan there are so many to choose from but this was the first that came to mind and then he just provided conveniently a clip of Jackie Chan sliding down uh-huh. the building, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is just, it's such an iconic sequence. It's so good. So that was, uh, that was the responses that we got back. That I really had a hard time picking just one. And that, and that Jackie Chan uh, stunt from police story is just so good and was, <laughs> was definitely in the running for me. Yeah. Mine actually is, a, it's another police story stunt and it's specifically the one where he's sliding down the pole in the middle of the mall. Um, jumping from, I think it's like three or four stories where he jumps off a height, grabs a pole, slides down it, and he's taking all of these electric lights down with him. And the stunt is so good that they show it three separate times within the movie, all from different (laughs) angles. I mean, Jackie Chan, one of the greatest to to ever do it, for sure. Absolutely. What about you, Kevin? Uh, So uh, Police Stories, I kind of cheated on this one. I had a few picks. Uh, Police Story was one that I thought of. Um, I mean, you can't really talk about cinematic stunts without at least tipping the hat to Buster Keaton. Yes. Uh, lots of great stuff to choose from from there. I really like his work in the general, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more recently, I, I really... So when I was thinking about this, um, you know, there's lots of different kinds of philosophies of stunts. There's kind of like the ones where it's like, you know, just incredible feats of athleticism. And then there's the kinds of stunt where... It just feels very real and and like immediate. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the uh, 2003 version of Old Boy uh, by Ch- Pak Chanuk, specifically the hallway fight scene oh. where our hero is trapped in a hallway with do- literally dozens of of henchmen who all want to see him dead, and he has to fight them all off. It's a I think it's like a f- close to four minutes single take sequence where he is just scrapping his way down this hallway filled with henchmen. And it's not a, an elaborate, well, it is an elaborately choreographed stunt sequence, but it's not sort of the John Wick, you know, flawless headshots and somersaults and all that. It's just dirty fighting, very gritty. Everyone get by the end of it is winded. And it feels much like, if you were actually going to have a giant melee in a hallway, it would be a lot closer to Old Boy than John Wick. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I really appreciate how by the end of the fight scene, everybody is out of breath and limping and 
half crying and just kind of like throwing things at each other just to try to, you know, do, make something happen. It's just, it's a really deceptively complex scene and it's just, it's also very satisfying. And I know there's just something about that that sticks in my mind. So that, that's a great pick. And I think it speaks a lot to the level of endurance that stunt performers have to deal with as well. Um, it's not just looking flashy. It's also being able to deliver those results consistently without anybody getting injured, which is an achievement in and of itself. What was, uh, what was your pick? Oh, I mean, I was thinking Jackie Chan all the way. Um, I also just, I love everything about Mad Max Fury Road. Mm -hmm. So, um, most of those stunts are really good, but there's one particular one where a war boy jumps off a rig onto another car with a spear in each hand and the stunt performer actually jumped off the rig and onto another car and came within, I think, six inches of hitting the ground. It's an incredible shot, and I I love that sequence, and so it's something that I just think about all the time. Yeah, Mad Max Fury Road, lots of great moments from that movie that could have answered this question as well. Definitely. Thanks so much, listeners, for, for sharing your picks. If there's anyone out there who has something on the tip of their tongue that they still want to share with us, the Twitter mailbox is still open, so definitely let us know your favorite stunt sequence in a movie. Those we, we live for that kind of stuff. Good stuff to look up on YouTube for later. Absolutely. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it. We come back to it. And Kevin, this week you picked a movie called My Man Godfrey, specifically the 1936 version, not the 1957 remake. And uh, the connection here, you know, has a little bit to do with polite society and class consciousness, which I think is very appropriate given the movie that we just talked about. So in My Man Godfrey, Irene Bullock, who is played by Carol Lombard, is a socialite on a mission to find a man, specifically a forgotten man for a scavenger hunt. And she finds Godfrey, played by William Powell, in a Hooverville down by the Hudson River, basically on top of an ash heap. And she convinces him to take part in the scavenger hunt and then later on hires him on as the family butler as part of a series of maybe not necessarily unfortunate events, but definitely, you know, screwball sort of events. Godfrey finds his hands full with the Bullock family, who proved to be even richer and more out of touch than they seemed at the scavenger hunt in which they go and look for someone who is effectively unhoused as a prize for a game. Godfrey is a capable butler, though, and eventually he's able to turn the tables on the Bullock family thanks to his unflappable demeanor and the fact that there's more to him than meets the eye. Um, and one of the things that the movie opens up with, once Godfrey has been taken to this scavenger hunt and essentially like weighed as a prize for the hunt, um, he addresses the crowd and he says, I came to see how an empty-headed crowd of nitwits comported themselves. My curiosity is satisfied. And the movie kind of carries on with the social commentary from there. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know, given that we have, you know, a slew of Eat the Rich movies that have been coming out lately, they're kind of in fashion again, how does My Man Godfrey weigh up against the other more recent fare? I mean... I I really like My Man Godfrey. I think a lot of the reason I love it is is mostly just because I think it's a very sharp comedy. Like mm -hmm. it, I I think if there's a quibble I have with a lot of um, contemporary movies that do have social commentary, so they kind of put the card a little bit before the horse, where it's social commentary first, and then a comedy or a horror movie second mm -hmm. and um i think that my man godfrey kind of has its priorities in the right order where yes it does want to satirize its rich characters but it also wants to be a good comedy and i think it, it understands that um if it does one the other one will just naturally follow mm. the rich characters in my man godfrey are not not just ridiculous, they're kind of vaguely insane. <laughs> yes. And I think knowing the context of this movie, that it did come out in the 1930s, the Great Depression, hello. Like, mm -hmm. it, it comes, it, it, it just having that kind of context for this movie where it's not just that these people are jerks, but that it's almost, 
you can't believe they they exist. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of that sense of the sheer absurdity of of extreme wealth, I think, goes a long way towards making making it satire stick and also making its its rich characters who are exaggerated, but they're not exaggerated in a way that just kind of makes them villains. They're kind of exaggerating ways that just like their extreme wealth has just completely disconnected them from the way actual people live. Mm-hmm. The fact that they go on a scavenger hunt for human beings and it just doesn't occur to them that that's deeply wrong and in- insulting. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, uh, I don't know, I, I really dig that part of the movie. I also like how this is a romantic comedy and the the romance is between William Powell's Godfrey and the rich young lady who at first brings him in as part of the scavenger hunt. So it's she's she's the love interest. So the way this movie is able to keep her likable in a, in a sense, keep her you want you want to see them get together hmm. as you would in any romantic comedy, but it also doesn't let her off the hook for the fact that she is naive and spoiled and rich beyond everyone's wildest nightmares. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I just I think my man Godfrey really manages that balance really well. Yeah. Um, there's a moment where another set of rich people show up to the same party with another forgotten man in tow. And once they realize that they're not the first to show up with him, he's effectively useless. Like he's not going to award them enough points in order to be able to win the game. And he doesn't care about any of this. He just wants the $5 that he was promised. And I like that the way that he asks for that $5 reveals that there's been some amount of dignity that's for sale for the low, low price of $5. I mean, it was much more back in the 1930s, but still there is a level of dignity that is for sale here for $5. And yet it's not actually that of the unhoused person in the situation. Like it feels Mm. as though the money that has changed hands here is something that has corroded the rich people so that they don't understand the worth of the other people who exist in the world around them. Like they literally treat everybody else as curiosities when they themselves are the ones who are completely ridiculous, smashing up all of the windows up and down Fifth Avenue on their way home from a party and riding a horse up the front steps and into the library. And I love the way that those lines about those details are just sort of tossed off because they're completely ordinary to the Bullock family. But the way that William Powell plays it is just so smart because you can tell that his character thinks all of this is completely ridiculous. And he also knows how to maintain his composure around this kind of obscene wealth because he's seen it before. He understands how to navigate it. And he also has enough distance from it at this point that he gets why it's so corrosive. And he's also not going to let any of it corrupt him either. I think it's it's a lovely piece of work on his part because it feels pretty subtle. I really like William Powell in this movie. He just, even rewatching it, just the, the, um, the way that he... Uh, maintains his composure, like you said, mm-hmm. uh, in in the face of things, and and just he underplays a lot of these lines where he he's just he just says it, and you it just lands with just the right amount of force without putting too fine of a point on it. Like it's it's not easy for for somebody to play that way without coming across as self congratulatory, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Powell manages it with flying colors. It's a it's an incredible performance. Yeah, yeah. Nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, and well deserving, I think, of that nomination for sure. Yeah, I think William Powell is very good here. I think he's surrounded by a cast of extremely good performers who know exactly what register to behave on as well. Carol Lombard, also terrific, and working in a completely different way that William Powell is, which makes their odd couple chemistry work really well because where he's understated she is completely over the top and then she gets to play a character who is also playing completely over the top in universe when she's trying to get godfrey's attention there's a couple of sequences where 
um, she's moping because he has rejected her advances. He's very firmly maintaining the, I am the employee and you are the employer. You are going to stay out of my room. You are not going to try to kiss me. Um, and she treats it as though it's the end of the world and like she's mourning a death. And the first time we see her after that rejection, she's literally like leaning against all of the walls in the back of the scene, just moving from corner to corner in the hopes that somebody else will notice her. The rest of her family isn't giving her any notice because she's clearly done this sort of nonsense before. And Godfrey's not noticing it because he's very pointedly not noticing it because he's a consummate professional. And I just, I love that contrast between the two of them. Carol Lombard has this one line reading. And and the the thing about talking about comedies is I feel like a lot of time you're just sort of explaining why a joke is funny. So apologies to our listeners, but I do think that it's not easy to, uh, for the performers to just sell it so well. Mm -hmm. Um, There, there's a, a line reading that Carol Lombard has where, uh, she's, she's very sad because, you know, uh, her, she's been rebuffed by Godfrey and, uh, she's collapsed on a couch and she's crying and, you know, her mom's doing her best to cheer her up and Lombard just wails. I don't want to feel better. I want to die. <laughs> and it is the, f- it is the funniest thing in the movie. <laughs> I, and I, I think that, that, that level of childlike solipsism is very funny because it's exaggerated for for comic effect and i think that's maybe why my man godfrey wears its social commentary so well and so lightly is because the the comedy and the commentary are kind of one and the same it's funny that somebody would be so privileged and used to getting their way that simply not being able to sexually harass their employee Mm -hmm. is a grand Greek tragedy. That's kind of funny when you think about it. And I I think the movie understands that. It's very funny. And it's very funny with the way that Carol Lombard plays it because this is a very committed crying jag that she's going on. And I, I really appreciate just how much she's selling it as a character who is selling it. And for a moment, you almost believe that she is actually crying this hard. And then she just bounces right off the couch as soon as she realizes that her mother is out of the room. It's the point of every single temper tantrum is to get attention. And then the Mm -hmm. moment that that attention is gone, you don't need to have that fit or pitch that fit anymore. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I, I do feel like I am explaining why the joke is so funny, but I think that that kind of gets at the strength of this movie, both as comedy and as social commentary, which is that the metaphor isn't the only point here. And I think that's the thing that I find disappointing about a lot of eat the rich type comedies today is that the metaphor is the only point and then you kind of build the story around it. Whereas here, the metaphor just kind of grows organically from the fertile soil that like just the funny situation gives you in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like especially for comedies, the more self-congratulatory it gets about just how how smart it is about recognizing that you know rich people are a weird man and kind of congratulating the audience on getting it too i think my man godfrey is just it it's saying these things but if you aren't really if you're just kind of in the mood for a comedy it's got the goods mm-hmm. and it, it you don't it doesn't need to pat itself or its audience on the back simply for being on the same page about a very fairly black, very, fairly cut and dried issue. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Even beyond Carol Lombard, though, I think I really appreciate Jean Dixon as Molly, the housemaid. Mm-hmm. That's such a great performance, too. And I, I think I mostly just want to talk about the performances in this movie because they're really what carry the scenario. Um, Molly as the maid is so deadpan where everybody else is so either restrained in the case of William Powell or over the top in the case of literally everybody else in the cast that she kind of adds an additional level of depth and texture to this movie. Um, She's seen it all before and she's knows that she's going to have to see it all again. And 
I think the funniest part about her character is that she is so completely unshakable and unflappable right up until after Godfrey's been in the house for a little while. And we don't even see her fall for his character. We just see her sort of start to fall apart when she realizes that she's fallen in love with him. And then when she and Irene Bullock, Carol Lombard's character, both discover that they've fallen for the same man, the two of them just sort of have to comfort each other and cry about it because there's nothing else that either of them can do. And I love that it's not just a rivalry. It's sort of a sisterhood of we're in this terrible situation where the man that we love is not going to give us any of the attention that we want. And so we are going to, you know, have a tough time about it, and then continue to try to win his heart. Yeah, and I, I want to call out uh, Eugene Pallet as as well. He's the the patriarch of this family, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he's an interesting character as well uh, because he of the entire family, he seems to be the only one who kind of understands how crazy everyone is, mm-hmm. but he also doesn't have the willpower to really do anything about it. He just grumbles about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And Pallet is a great cinematic uh, grumbler, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think about him in the, the Philadelphia story as well, just how good he is. He's just got that that really deep voice and those jowls, and he just is nonplussed by everything, man. And he's he's so good. And he also is a nice, provides a nice little bit of a of a of a counterpoint where everyone else is so exaggerated that it helps to have him kind of just to um work against the grain a little bit so that the the craziness of of this family doesn't become overwhelming or monotonous mm-hmm. and it also kind of helps it not seem like you know all of the the working class people are you know are the sane ones and all the rich people are the insane ones. It's more like, no, they're all just people. It's just some of them uh, have more things in their lives that warp their perceptions of reality than others. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that there's that level of texture within every single one of the characters within this family. Um, I'm kind of curious to know what you think about how this movie ends. And I guess like this is a movie from 1936. We can talk about the ending. We can talk about Godfrey's sordid past as also a rich person who has fallen on hard times himself. Um, What do you make of the way that the romance here resolves itself? Because for me, it felt so abrupt that I kind of felt taken aback. And I, I felt as though I had been sort of shoved into Godfrey's shoes, so to speak. Uh, Eternally put upon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I felt like that kind of, the the way that uh, Irene, you know, shows up at the end and says, surprise, we're getting married now, is the, in a way, feels very much of a piece of the entire movie because that's sort of, the way he's found himself in this mess to begin with is a, she parachutes into his life mm-hmm. and says, we're going to go do this thing now. Want to come? And he's sort of like, I guess so. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm along for the ride. And uh, he he gets carried along with it. And I think that's part of the, the comic appeal of the movie is mm-hmm. that it's funny to watch somebody sort of be dragged along against their will. <laughs> uh, and in, in the case of uh, a comedy like this one, you know, for it to end in marriage and even the marriage kind of be a thing like, oh, I, okay, I, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, I guess we're doing this now. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it, it makes sense for her as a character to make that one last gesture towards him. And I feel like... It gives him a little bit of an arc where now that they're on an equal footing, where he's not just the the, the person that she picks up off the street, but is her, her social peer, hmm. um, that permits him to acquiesce to her advances in a way that if he had before, it would have felt icky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it, it works for me, even if it does... Like, it is it is abrupt, but it also feels like it almost needs to be because everything else that's happened over the course of the movie has been things that happened to him that he just almost weathers. Hmm. And that that feels like a weird way to put it because 
it is a happy ending and Carol Lombard is Carol Lombard. So it's not like a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it, it feels like almost the the logical conclusion of this mode where they do live happily ever after, but the path they take to get there has to be through their usual dynamic of her just kind of showing up and uh, thrusting something upon him that he has to decide what to do with. Yeah, it's interesting. You did say that at the end of the movie, he's effectively her social peer, and that's part of what makes you know the marriage a little bit more socially acceptable. But he's kind of always her social peer. I don't know. Like, it's interesting because there is a, a th- that thread of cultural commentary where running through the movie where um, he is presented as being a character who is you know witty and has worth regardless of his social station. And then halfway through the film, you find out that he is not just Godfrey, but he's Godfrey Park of the Boston Parks. And he's always had money and he's not going to be telling his family that he's working as a butler, essentially. But if he needed it, like he could potentially fall back on that social situation. And he's just effectively decided that he's that's not for him anymore because he knows what money does to people. So I don't know. It feels as though the movie does a lot of work to ground Godfrey as a character who has worth in his own right without any money. And then once several of the other characters start to realize like he has also come from money and that's how he's taken to being a butler for this wild family with such grace and speed um, is because he kind of knows what to expect. And then once Irene understands that he's got that social station where they are effectively peers, then it's more okay for her to pursue him. But it feels as though the movie has always said that he's always going to be her equal. He's definitely like, I feel like intellectually, he's basically her superior. And the movie's pretty upfront about that, too. Um, And that's part of what makes their odd couple chemistry work so well, um, because she's got the energy and then he's got the wit. But I don't know. It feels as though he's being swept up. It feels as though it's more acceptable for the two of them to end up together because he has accepted some sort of a station in life that is higher than where he was at the beginning of the movie. And at the same time, the movie feels like it's also an argument for his station to be effectively equal to everybody else around him, regardless of that wealth. And so I don't know fully what to make of that, but it did give me a little bit of cognitive dissonance with that final... Mm rush in towards marriage i i wonder if it's if it's sort of an a very american way of of looking at uh, a certain kind of wealth where at the end of the movie he's not just the heir to the boston park's fortune he's sort of a self-made man like he's mm-hmm. he's made his his own money he's invested it into a business and now he's he is kind of back on he, he is no longer a temporarily embarrassed millionaire he's He's a a legitimate millionaire. A legitimate millionaire, <laughs> yeah. but he, you know, he got there by, you know, not because his parents were rich, but because he, through his own wit and savvy, uh, kind of got there himself. And so maybe in that way, it's sort of like he's found a way to thread the needle where hmm. his money won't be so totally corrupting as. You know the uh, the uh, the old money of the Bullocks. I guess. Yeah, the the Bullocks money kind of gets them into their state. <laughs> um, how much you buy that being a, a plausible resolution, I guess varies. I I think it's I think it works. Um, it's it feels like it's a, at least a philosophically coherent place for the movie to go, mm. even uh, if. There might be quibbles with the the overall acceptability of whether that's actually a good thing. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I wouldn't say no to being swept up by Carol Lombard either. So. <laughs> Whomst among us yes. would, would say no to that. Well, thanks for watching this movie and talking about it with me. Uh, I'm glad to, that I had the excuse to, to revisit it for this, for this episode. Yeah, it was a fun one. So uh, next week, we are going to be talking about... A little movie called Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you've heard of it. Um, and you had the driver's seat for the watch list for that episode. So what are you picking to go with that movie? We are going to go with Akira. 
the Aha. 1988 anime film. Um, I promise there is a galaxy-brained connection. I don't think I want to tell you what it is until after you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But... So you're, you're guarding the galaxy brain take until <laughs> until next week? Yes, I am. All right. Well, well, we'll leave it for next week, I guess. But I am looking forward to, to hearing that. Looking forward to Akira as well. It's been on my watch list for forever. Like, it, I think when I got Letterboxd... Um, like it's been on my watch list on Letterbox for a really long time. Excellent. So I'm looking forward to catching up with it. Glad to fill in that particular blind spot then. And listeners, if you're also wanting to watch along with us, Akira is streaming on Hulu, so you can find it there. And of course, your local library will probably might have it on a physical release as well. Um, it's a you know fairly well known movie. Like it, it's it's a it's a big deal. So hopefully you're able accessible. to find it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so I'm looking forward to talking about that with you next week, and hopefully our listeners will join us as well. Mm-hmm. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing, of course, is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.